In Acts chapter 21, uh, at the very end is where, we're, where we'll pick up where we left off, spending most of our time in chapter 22. So if you can find your way probably to about, let's say, verse 33 of Acts chapter 21, we'll begin there, get a little bit of context, and run into the text of chapter 22. This movement of the good news, this thing that we believe that Jesus has done and accomplished for us, and the thing that he taught us and he's entrusted to us to multiply his kingdom throughout the world, the gospel, is creating a movement that the book of Acts describes for us. It's like part history, it's like an anthology of of stories and, and history and then sermons, and there's a beautiful thing that happens in this particular passage as we've seen the gospel begin to excite people but also offend people it upsets people as well as it as encourages them it gives them new life when they receive it but it also darkens their own hearts as they reject it and as a result we get a little taste of a defense that paul gives to the people who want to put him to death and so you're guaranteed this morning to hear a good sermon the reason you're guaranteed to hear a good sermon this morning is because i'm going to read you paul's so here we go beginning in Chapter 21, verse 33. Then the tribune, that's a fancy word for commander that we don't often use anymore, but then the tribune came up and arrested him, that is Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Side note, that is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy of the beginning of the chapter from the guy by the name of Agabus, if you'll remember. Arrested him, they ordered him to be bound in two chains, and he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts, because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem in order to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth 
whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And then the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that great light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and go out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those killed him and he said to me go for i will send you far away to the gentiles up to this word they that is the crowd listened to him but then they raised their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And so the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. So the tribune answered, I I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. There's a beautiful picture of this story and the movement that's described. Jesus left a command to his followers before he ascended that they were to take the gospel and saturate the earth with it, starting first with themselves. They would saturate even their own lives with the gospel. That everywhere that popped up sin or everywhere that they popped up idolatry or everywhere that inside of his followers that popped up wickedness, that they would preach the gospel first to themselves and say that this is not the way that it ought to be, but instead Jesus is king, a new kingdom is come, and there is good news because this king not, does not come to 
oppress and to rape and to pillage and to destroy. This King comes to save. And the Gospel is first declared to you and to me into the mirror every single morning. But then that Gospel saturation goes on to the nations. To the point that it's, it's gone all the way to Europe. And before this particular book of Acts is over, in the next few weeks, we will see the gospel go all the way to Rome. And when Paul makes his way to Rome, what does he find when he gets there? Christians already living there. The gospel goes everywhere. Gospel saturation is the goal. And it's the goal of every Christian, Christian to complete the ministry that God has given them. It's not their job to save the world, but it's the Christian's job to tell the world about the one who saved it. This creates a compelling and amazing sense of community. We saw in the last couple of chapters that as Paul senses that maybe the end is near for him, as he senses that these things are over and that that maybe his time as a missionary and as a messenger of this good news is over, then we see them weeping. As they cut ties with one another, we see them breaking from one another and they're weeping they're deeply troubled that they have to say goodbye to one another and you begin to see that this good news creates a compelling sense of community an amazing and miraculous sense of community such that they're weeping that means you get that when there's that weeping and parting kind of sorrow that means that when they saw each other and they asked one another how they were doing they didn't just quickly say fine right they let their weakness be on display and they allowed people to speak into it is a different kind of community, a compelling kind of community, a community, I would argue, that is a model for you and I, a normative kind of picture that you and I are to have of what it means to call ourselves Christians around other people. But it also creates a kind of community changed by a kind of message that we can't keep a secret. News is too good to keep a secret at times, right? Think, think of it this way. This is the picture of evangelism. The most difficult part of, of being on mission and sharing this. And so if you're in this room and you're kind of like, I'm not a believer. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I have good news for you. But in the meantime, I would hope that, that you would kind of watch and see what it is that we do because we have something that God has done for us that is too compelling to keep a secret. In the same way that I would ask you, this, how long can you keep a headache a secret, right? How long can you keep a stomachache a secret? And the answer is you can kind of keep it to yourself until it becomes so powerful that what's going on on the inside becomes evident on the outside. So also, Jesus has transformed us. The gospel has saturated our sense of identity and it changes everything we do. It's a declaration of a new kingdom and a new king that is good. And that kingdom kingdom loyalty is something that people naturally resist. When you tell someone, hey, I disagree with you, that's one thing. But when you tell someone that there's a new king, a new way of life, and their old way of thinking, and their old sense of identity is gone, then they begin to resist. And not just in disagreement, but as we see here, even with violence. Because their loyalty, as you see, when you declare that Jesus is king, is somewhere else. And when you declare that Jesus is king, you feel it, don't you? You feel the resistance inside of you. Of all the places you wish you were king. They're not just angry. I mean, after all, we talked about this last week. That kingdom loyalty, that kind of thing that, up, that breaks out into violence here, it's, it's different than like if you told a, a Vikings fan that the Vikings are not a good football team, right? That's just whatever. Okay, we know you're right. Uh, but like if you told a Green Bay Packers fan that that's not a good football team, now all of a sudden there's a riot, correct? Now all of a sudden there's like, ooh, there's kingdom loyalty here. There's a sense of identity. And you see the difference all around us. There are some things you can disagree with people and they'll just politely disagree. But there are some things you can disagree with people and violence is, is the first response. 
topics go on and on and on. The gospel calls us to a kind of loyalty and a kind of camaraderie that is different and transcends all things. And so the culture that we see here, the, the, the setting that we find ourselves in in this particular passage is one of uproar. It's one of chaos. So picture for just a minute something that has been on your mind hopefully in the last year. Picture Ferguson, Missouri, okay? Picture Baltimore. There's a riot and there is violence. There's anger. People are bloodthirsty. And that's the setting we find here. Don't, I mean, not, this is not like a bunch of college students that their team just won the national championship so they're drunk and having a good time, right? This is not that kind of riot, okay? This is the kind of riot that only ends when the bloodthirsty mob is satisfied with the blood. It's the same kind of mob. In fact, the word used here to describe this riot is the same word that Matthew uses to describe the mob that ended up killing Jesus. It's not just an angry party. These people are angry, fury, and they want to kill. Because when you declare that Jesus is king, your loyalty to other things comes to question. And we find something amazing in kingdom loyalty. Normally I have a slide that I can control, but I'm not, I'm not looking at that at the moment, so you're just going to have to trust me on this one. So every follower of Christ has an eternally significant story, and they have a deep sympathy for their unbelieving hearers. There's two parts of this story, two parts of this particular passage. Paul telling his story, and then the response of people who do not believe him. Every person who is following Jesus, if you've been changed by Jesus, if you would find your identity in Him, if you trusted in Him, and you trust your future and your eternity in Him, you, every follower of Jesus, has an eternally significant story to tell and a deep sympathy for the unbelieving hearers. The first thing you see is the story that he tells. They begin to accuse Paul of particular things here because he tells his story. He begins addressing the crowd in a particular way that I want to draw attention to just briefly. He says, brothers and fathers in verse 1 of chapter 22. Just just for a minute and, and kind of pick up on the grace that this man has been shown by Jesus such that he shows grace to people who just beat him up. I don't know what you would do, but if there's a mob and they want to kill you and then you address them, I don't know how you would start that, but it would probably be like, you, you fools, what are you doing? Stop it. And this man is overcome with God's grace such that he addresses the crowd. Like he just wipes the blood off of his own face and says, my brothers, my fathers. This is similar to what Stephen would have done that was mentioned here in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. Right before he died, instead of raging against his followers, he has this amazing similarity with Jesus. And he says, Father, forgive them. And he dresses them obsequiously, like, like you are my masters. Don't, don't do what you're doing, but instead I love you and care for you. Even though they're beating him, he says, forgive them, God. They don't know what they're doing. And Paul says, brothers, fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Hear the defense that I now make before you. So this, this is courtroom language that he engages in here this is the language of the court this is what you say when you make a defense for legal claims he says here is my defense the people were beating him and they were accusing of something so if you wonder like well what is it that they were accusing him of you can go back just to the last chapter and you come to find out that the thing they were accusing him of was that he was three things he was preaching against the jewish people he was opposing the law and then also he was preaching against the temple 
Now, in reality, those were all false. He, was only pre- he wasn't preaching against the Jews. He was a Jew, and he was preaching the name of a Jew by the name of Jesus, not against Jews. And he certainly wasn't preaching against the law. Over and over and over again, this conversation comes up, and it's simply to say that it's not by what you do that you're made right. And Paul in no place says that Jewish believers should stop practicing their customs and stop being religious. But instead, he simply says that the Gentiles, the people who were not raised religious, don't have to follow those particular practices. Because it's not what they have done that saves them and puts them right before God. It's what God has done in Jesus that saves them and puts them right before God. And so he pressures no one to do those things. So it's a false accusation. But thirdly, they accuse him of preaching against the temple. Just stop for a minute. This is, this is a thing that even comes up in Jesus' day. The thing they accused him of when he said, when Jesus said this good news that, look, this kingdom is going is is to be eternal. It's never going to end. And he said about the temple, which is a symbol, a small and imperfect symbol of God's kingdom where he is present forever. He said to the people, look, this temple's going down. Someone's going to knock it down. But if I wanted to, I could raise it back up in three days. Meaning that the temple of God is no longer going to be a building made of brick and mortar. But the temple of God would would no longer be symbolized by a building or even something with a steeple or tower. The the temple, the presence of God among his people was going to be Jesus Christ. And he would be raised up in three days. Such that the temple, the veil torn between God and God's people was torn when Jesus died. So that now you and I don't have to go to a place to worship, but now God comes to us. And the place that is made holy and right is not a building, but it is your heart and mine. The sacred space is now the place where God has called us to be in communion with Jesus. Just a side note here. The other day we were... um, we got in, um, I, I have a, it's called the date car. It just means that it's a car we have that serves no purpose in the world. Um, it's too small to put car seats in, uh, and it goes fast, and it's loud, so my wife hates it. So it only goes on dates with my little girls, and we go out. And, and my little girl, she goes, I love this car. I love the date car. And my first response was, me too, right? That's why we still own it. Um, otherwise, yeah, that, you know, once you can't have car seats in it, get rid of it. But I, I had to stop her and stop myself, and I go, baby, j- just wait a minute. We don't love the car. We love each other. We love people. We don't love stuff. We love people. And stuff, like the date car, gives us a great sense of appreciation and enjoyment for people, doesn't it? And I told him, you know the greatest thing about the date car? Again, again, you doesn't mean anything. If you can get in my car, I'll give you a ride. That doesn't mean we're on a date. I don't want to mess that up for you, right? But, but like... <laughs> Don't be afraid to get in the car. Is this the, is this the date car? I don't want in that car. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's a thing. But I got to ask my girls, you know, you know my favorite thing about the date car? Is when you're in it with me. We love people. We use stuff. Because be careful, when you love stuff, you will use people. We love people. We use stuff. People have an eternal value given to them by God such that we can see their image visibly, even if it's cloudy. Stuff ends up in a landfill. And when you love stuff and use people, everyone's robbed of their joy. I point that out because that's kind of a peripheral point here where they're accusing Paul of defiling and defaming the temple. Why? Because they didn't love Paul, they loved the temple. They didn't see the temple as stuff 
that enhanced their experience of Almighty God. They loved the stuff, the temple, such that they were willing to kill people from Jesus to Stephen and now Paul. I point that out. That's a particularly important point that our world probably needs to hear. We love people, not stuff. We use stuff for people. We do not use people for stuff. And you know what it looks like when we break that. So he's falsely accused of these things. This angers them. This, this makes them angry. In, in fact, right now, as you're, as you're sitting there thinking about the stuff you own that maybe you value a little bit too highly, there's something in you that's like, ah, I don't want to let go of that. I don't want to give that up. Multiply that times a thousand, and now you get the anger that they're throwing at Paul and they want to kill him. And yet he addresses them, brothers and fathers, I'm making a defense. I want to make a defense to you. And what kind of defense does he make? Who does he call to the witness stand to make a defense? What does he appeal to to affirm and defend the validity of this good news, this gospel of Jesus and his new kingdom? Who does he call to the witness stand? Himself. And what does he use as an argument? His testimony. Over and over and over again, from chapter 9 to this chapter to chapter 26, we'll hear it again. We'll unfold it even more then. In Philippians 3, he relates to he relates the part of his story. In Galatians 1, the people who were unbelieving, he, he relates to his story and how Jesus had encountered him and saved him. In 1 Timothy 1, he also relates his story. When he has a chance to make a defense for the validity of the gospel, he doesn't appeal to archaeology. He doesn't appeal to some sort of apologetic. He doesn't appeal to some authority. He just tells them how he met Jesus. Friend, those things all have great purpose, right? There's a time for apologetics to make a defense. There's a time for a philosophical argument for the existence of God and the evidence that we see in the world. There's evidence, the Bible tells us, of God's creation all around us. There's a time for that defense. There's a time for archaeology. I could, you know, right? Uh, one, of the, you know, one of the things I like to even point you love Shakespeare, right? There are tons more manuscripts of the Bible and different parts of the Bible, thousands more than the manuscripts we have left of Shakespeare's play. It's more, it's more valid than Shakespeare. It's that good. There's a time for that argument. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that when he has a chance to defend the gospel, he just refers to his story. Christian, you have a story to tell. You have a story. A story that you once were dead. You were lifeless. You thought you knew good from bad, good from evil, right from wrong. You didn't. But God in his mercy, while you were dead didn't punish you and kick you while you were down, but he sent his son Jesus to pull you out. You have a story. You have an amazing story. Just like Paul, you encountered Jesus. For some of you, it looked different. For some of you, it was at a camp. For some of you, you're watching a televangelist on TV. God help us, right? For some of you, even now, maybe it's now, you're, you're hearing me tell you that God loves you and he's not after you, but he wants to rescue you and draw you into his kingdom. Some of you have a story of when you saw Jesus and your eyes were opened. For Paul... Or Saul, at this particular point, he was running away from God, and as he was running away from God, he encountered Jesus face to face, and it changed his life. You have a story to tell. You have a story. The story you have been given is not a small story, because the, and, and here's, here's, to maybe start that conversation, if you find yourself afraid of telling your story about Jesus, just, just 
Get this, right? If you don't think your story's any good, then if you don't think your story is any good, then here's, here's the thing for you. Your main character is wrong. If you think your story's no good, then it's probably about you. But if your story's about Jesus, then now we're talking about miracles of death coming to life, brokenness being made whole, reconciliation where there once was wrath and anger. So, so Christian, if you find yourself thinking, my story's no good, I agree, your story is bad. But the story, this good news of Jesus Christ that wraps you up in it and draws you into it, man, it's priceless. And it can change the world. If you want to see God's love, you look at a Christian. If you want to get, see God's mercy, you look at a Christian. If you want to see God's forgiveness, you, you watch a Christian. If you want to hear about God's faithfulness, you listen to a Christian. God has entrusted the greatest story of the world to you. It's like he sent his son. And that must have been a, a, a tumultuous thing. We can't impose our emotions upon God, but, but there's some pretty clear evidence that this was not just a, an easy thing, but this was a costly thing. God bankrupted heaven to send his son, Jesus Christ. And when it happened, it all went, man, crazy things happened, and he was dead, and then he came to life. And when they said, God, hey, what happened? What was that whole thing? Do you know what he did? He pushed you in and he goes, hey, you know what? Let him tell it. What happened with this old Jesus thing? He takes it and says, hey, let her tell it. And what an amazing thing that by his grace, he has entrusted this story, the story that changes everything, the story that gives everyone identity and everything meaning. He has entrusted to you and to me. I would love to tell you about all the people that I have argued into believing in Jesus. Right? I would love for that to be the case. And I wish that's what he did here. Right? I wish Paul had been like, I wish he like stuck it to him, right? Snarky, sarcastic, because he does that. That shows up elsewhere. And just been like, oh yeah? You're going to beat me? I mean, I wish he had just like dropped the hammer on him and made him feel stupid and belittled them. That's awesome. I could do that, right? That's pretty natural. We can do that. I know enough big words that, that I can kind of argue my, my way through some things, right? I know enough big words. I can kind of undermine your logic and point out the logical fallacies in your argument. And then at the end, you'd be like, I win. You're following Jesus. I would love that to be the case, but that isn't, is it? Oh, it isn't. Instead, he just stands up and he says, my brothers, my fathers, I don't hate you. I want to make a defense to you. And the defense I give to you is that I'm one of you. But now I know Jesus. Whether you believe it or not, if you have come face to face with Jesus in whatever form that looks like for you, you have a story and you have been entrusted with the greatest story and your part in it, and you should tell it. Again, no one will be impressed by your story, but they'll be amazed when they come to hear this story about what God has done for you. The story has some components. I want to run through them real quickly and then we'll talk about the response of this story. Story has some components. First component is that the story they tell points to the glory of Jesus. Secondly, it points to the weight of sin, specifically that your sin and my sin. For Paul, it was his sin. Thirdly, it points to a family love, a familial love. The story also includes, this is kind of a weird one, it sticks out, but I want to point to it, water baptism. And then it points to a bold witness for those who might believe. 
So the story that Paul tells and the story that you and I tell has some components. It, it, it talks about, we talk about, just like Paul talks about, the glory of Jesus, the weight of our own sin, the family love that's a result, a water baptism that's the evidence and symbol, and then the bold witness to people who might believe. So let's start. The glory of Jesus. Did you catch that? Tell your story. And it goes for 20 verses about this Jesus. The glory of Jesus. If you look in verse 6 and 7. As I was on my way and I drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Just, just catch what he's saying there. This is not a bright light in the darkness. This is the brightest possible moment of the day. And Luke wants, to re- wants you to remember that as Saul tells you about a blinding light, it wasn't because he was like, oh, it's dark. Someone flips on the light when you wake up early in the morning and, ah, I'm blinded. Not that kind of light. It's the kind of blinding, apparently, that outshines the sun at noon. And that's, that's Jesus. This is the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. So much so that we, we pick this up in Revelation. At the very end of the story, when the Garden of Eden is restored and it's a city, there's no shadows Not because there's a sun. In fact, there is no sun. But it's because the glory of God through Jesus shines on everything. Blinding in the middle of the sun. Sunny day, right in the middle of noon. Glory of Jesus that we encounter as a person is blinding and it makes even the things that used to be really shiny to us look dull. Verse 7, he says, He fell to the ground and then he heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? Jesus is great. He's not just great in His purity and holiness, which we see visibly in this light that's blinding, brighter than noon. But He's also great in His mercy and His faithfulness. And He's also great in His sovereignty. Sovereign, that's a weird word that we use a lot. First place we see it is when these people pray. They pray surrounding the death of Stephen. They say, Sovereign Lord. And that's a weird thing to do, isn't it? In light of your friend dying for his faith, it's kind of hard to say something like God is sovereign. That is that God is in charge. Because after all, our human nature is to ask, how could God let that happen? And for us, in the book of Acts, from 6, 7, and 8, it appears that even though the people had been commanded to take the good news to the nations, it wasn't until they were terrified by the, t- by the death of Stephen that they actually were obedient. And so this crazy thing's happened God's will takes place in spite of terrible things happening. He's sovereign. That's a nice way of saying Jesus runs stuff. Jesus runs things. He's Lord. And the right response are the two questions that Paul asks. He goes, dude, he said, who are you, Lord? I want to know who you are. Who are you really? Who are you that blinds me? But then he asks a few verses later, what do you want me to do? What shall I do, my Lord? Jesus is great. There's echoes of this. Whenever the angel comes to the Virgin Mary and says, you were about to give birth to a son, the first thing that the angel tells Mary is, he will be great. Period. It's going to be great. There's glory in his greatness. There's glory into his, in his sovereignty. You, you caught that, if you caught that, I don't know, if you saw kind of the, the plan here, Jesus says to him, in verse 10, get up, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do don't miss that this is not a plan b it's not like paul was like causing a real ruckus and jesus was like man i'm gonna have to go down there and blind that dude and fix him the whole time even when he was 
destroying the church and putting people to death and putting them on trial for their faith in Jesus Christ. The whole time Jesus was like, I got an appointment. I got an appointment. Just wait. You just wait. Let him him cause all the trouble that he wants because I have an appointment with him. So also, this will blow your mind or cause you to be greatly skeptical. Jesus, before the foundation of the entire world was laid, looked across time and space into human history and set his sights on your soul. Feel the weight of this. Across time and history, Jesus set his sights on your soul. And he is appointed for you to be his. And you're sitting there right now and you're like, man, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe that. Here's, here's the cool thing. Believe it or not, he has appointed you. He's reaching toward you. He is imploring that you would be his. And so that you would know how important that is, he died in your place across eternity. He has appointed it. He has set aside a moment and he has made an appointment and some of you as if you can think about maybe even right now you're beginning to jog your memory of how you came to know how good jesus is or even now as you're coming to know it i want you to know that was an appointment that was on jesus's calendar eternity past and he's not late second thing that we see in his story is his sin the first thing he points out to the people about his story is that he used to persecute this way. I love that phrase in verse 6. He says, I was on my way. Isn't that a beautiful picture of like kind of life? I'm doing my thing. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I do what I want. And while he was on his way, he was appointed a particular time to see Jesus face to face. And the first thing that he realized is that he was doing something wrong. And the first thing Jesus points out is what it is that he's doing wrong. And he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul thought what he was doing was right. He thought he was the better good. He thought he was being highly religious and highly faithful, highly obedient. And Jesus points out what is wrong about that. Make no mistake about it, this is the painful part, but it's also God's mercy that he does it. Whenever you see Jesus face to face, you become painfully aware of all the reasons you don't deserve his love. In fact, that's what the enemy uses as a tactic. The first thing that creeps in your mind is that can't be real. If that's really true, if Jesus does love me, there's no reason he should. Make no mistake about it. Whenever we see Jesus face to face, we see his holiness, we see his brightness and realize how dull and dark and rebellious we are. This hurts, but just let me encourage you for just a moment this doesn't mean that the first thing that Christians do is go, you need to stop this, you need to quit this, you need to break, stop breaking these rules. What it means is, is that once we were walking in darkness and now we can't stumble around in the dark anymore. We once were dead, but now we can't lay around like dead people. We once were sinful and rebellious, but now we're following a new king who gives us new life. His way's better. I promise you, just give it a shot. His way really is better. And that guilt, that shame, that sense, that, that awareness of how unworthy you are of god's love that's not a bad thing don't run from it that's his mercy look my wife my wife and i do this all the time if my daughter is running into traffic i'm going to make her feel bad about it i'm going to make sure she knows that i do not approve that is not the way 
do not run into traffic. That's bad. And in that moment, especially my younger, she will be shocked and she'll start to pucker her, her bottom lip and it's awful. And she's going to try to make me feel bad for pointing out that she was about to die. And she should not feel bad or hurt that I told her. She should feel grateful that ultimately I had her better needs. I had her joy, her ultimate survival in mind. And so when God reveals to you what's broken in you, don't run from it. Instead, realize that he's good. Jesus is great, remember. Jesus is great in wrath, so you must fear him. But Jesus is great in love, so you can embrace him. Jesus is great in faithfulness. You can trust him. He is great in mercy. You can run to him instead of hiding from him. The third thing we see as a result is a familial love. I don't have to go into this very much because I can, all, I can just tell you right now, if you look around this room, you will see the kind of family uh, that I've experienced as we've been a part of this church coming to life that I've never experienced in my whole life. There's a sense of family and this weird sense that like God's brought us here together for something that I want to invite you into because that's what happens when Jesus changes us. There's like this weird sense of family and you start to talk, people, talk to each other like family. You start to treat each other like family. Not because you agree. Let me give you the example. Skip to verse 13. Saul, he used to be killing people. He used to be taking people who believed in Jesus, tricking them into following him, putting them on the stand, and then helping them die. And in verse 13, Ananias, who was a follower of the way, a devout man who came face to face with Jesus, when he saw Saul and knew that he was a murderer, he knew that he was a liar, he knew that he was there to kill people, what does he call Saul? brother. Did you catch that? This was a terrorist, a murderer, and when he comes in, having encountered Jesus, he doesn't say, you, you, you better clean up your act. You better stop. And he had reservations. We see in chapter 9 that Ananias didn't want to do it because he thought he might die, but in the end, he says to Saul, who had been changed by Jesus, not you, evil man, not you, terrorist, or not why did you kill my family, or why did you kill my friends? He says, brother, There's a story of a family love. Fourth, there's a baptism. I mean, this seems like a weird point to make. I realize you're kind of thinking that that seems like out of the ordinary, but your story includes your baptism. This means a lot of different things for us in verse 16. I mean, it's here. If you're asking, like, why is that a big deal? Why are you talking about baptism? Why are you talking about baptism in water? Because it's here, and it seems to be a key component over and over and over again in this particular book. So he says, get up, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. So when you call on Jesus' name, you experience the washing away of sin. It's a painful process because you have to admit that sin, as we saw Paul do. Rise and be baptized, calling on his name. And just, just so you'll know, this is, this is the picture that God has given us of what he's done for us in Jesus, such that our story, if we ever wonder, how do I know that I really am with Christ? We remember that we were buried with Christ and raised. In the same way that Jesus Christ went into the grave and walked out boldly, so also we go into the water because we know that one day we're going to come out of the grave boldly with him as well. This is our testimony. It's a part of the gospel. And if you wonder if yourself, as we get to the end of this, you're like, how do I tell my story? Step one, telling your story, be baptized. So Christian, if you believe and you trust in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, then you're missing out on the key first ingredient of testimony. You're missing out on the key ingredient to the story. 
that you go into the water, but you're not afraid of drowning in the water any more than Jesus was afraid of staying in the grave. You come out and you're soaked, not just with water, but it's a symbol of what God has done for you with His Spirit. Your shoes squish with water in the same way that our footsteps squish with the power of the Holy Spirit. The last thing you see is a bold witness. Because this is the thing that made him angry. He had a bold witness and he said, I now... I'm going to heed God's call in verse 21 because God tells Paul, go to the Gentiles. Verse 22 tells us that that crowd of people, that riot that wanted to kill him, up to this point, they were listening. Right up to this point, they thought he was one of his own. But the thing that made him the most angry, the thing that made the crowd the most furious and pushed them over the edge was this particular message right here. Is that God loves people that you don't love. far away to the Gentiles. We saw this in Acts 1.8. This is kind of the outline of the whole, whole chapter or the whole book, remember? Jesus says, look, you're not going to have all the answers to all the questions, but you're going to be my witnesses. You've got a story to tell. You've got a mission that you're on, and it's a story you tell. First, you're going to go to Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to Judea. Then Samaria. Then the ends of the earth. Just so you're clear on that, they had just been threatened with death in Jerusalem. And Jesus goes, first, you're going to go to Jerusalem where they hate you. And if that's not enough, then you're going to go to Samaria where you hate them. And if that isn't far enough, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And when Paul says that this God who loves them also loves others who don't know it, this pushes them over the edge, and it probably would push you over too. As we've talked about for the last few weeks, the mission and the message that we've been given is the hardest part. It's the hardest part. It means you have to have awkward conversations. It means you have to win the right to have those kinds of conversations. It means you have to love some people in close enough proximity that they would actually care about what you believe. It means that you have to make an appeal, not just so that they would agree with you and you can be friends and hang out, but because their life is hanging in the balance. Because there is eternal significance and you, Christian, have been given and entrusted with an eternally significant story. Every step of the way, though, as they respond with anger, Paul just keeps going. Because lastly, you see here that not only have we been given an eternally significant story, but we have been given to have empathy a deep sense of sympathy for people who don't believe did you catch paul's words here he said look i used to be like you i used to be like you and so instead of being angry at them he says i know where you've been i know what that feels like so therefore you are my brothers and you are my fathers what if this might mess with you what if christians spent less time yelling at all the things in the world that are broken and spent more time sympathizing with how broken they used to be before they met Jesus. What if Jesus had done something in us so powerful that instead of seeing that which is broken and causing us to point our finger and scream at the top of our lungs, instead we draw near and say, I used to be like you. You have doubts? You have doubts about Jesus? <laughs> so do I. I know where you've been. You've done some things that have destroyed your reputation and destroyed relationships. 
Me too. That's how my story started. And then I met Jesus. And now He's carrying me all the way through. I'm not perfect. I still stumble. I still fall. But it's so funny. He never lets go. His love really never fails. And even though I do all of these things, we sang it earlier, this one thing seems to remain. He never lets go of me. And what if we were so compelled by what God had done for us in Jesus Christ that instead of yelling at the people that disagree with us, we empathize with them and look for every possible opportunity to share with them this amazing thing that he's done in our lives? What if you saw the people who hate you as opportunities to tell your story? What kind of a story would you have to craft to compel them to listen? Make no mistake about it. You and I have been shown amazing grace. You and I have been given an amazing amount of favor that we did not deserve. So Christian, you and I have an eternally significant story. Let us have a deep sense of sympathy for all the people who don't believe it. So if you're in this room and you're not a Christian and you're wondering why you're here, I'll tell you, you're here to become a Christian. Right? If you're in this room and you're not a Christian and you're wondering why you're here and why you're even listening to this, I want to beat you to it. You're here to become a Christian. You can trust Jesus. There is grace available to Him. You can run to Him with all that you have, all of your successes and failures and see that He is good. And I can give you a great assurance of pardon that if you will trust in Him, if you will look to Him for your hope, He will give you grace. And where there once was guilt and shame, He will replace it. God is not surprised by anything that you have done. He's not even surprised that you're here right now. Instead, He wants you to know. He wants you to know that He loves you and He hasn't changed His mind about you. And He's given you something greater in Jesus than anything you could accomplish. So if you're here, you're thinking, what do I do? Maybe some of you are believers, you know this. Maybe it's time for you to get baptized. Maybe it's time for you to take the first step of telling your story, telling it with the water. And when they ask, why'd you get wet? Well, because I was dunked with the Holy Spirit, right? Why'd Why'd you get in that water? Because now I've been cleaned by Jesus. That's the beginning of your story. Maybe that's for some of you. You'll see even on that card, there's a place where I would love, I and mean, if, that, if that's something you want to talk about, I want to know more about being baptized. I want to start telling my story. You're going to find it incredibly, if not infinitely, difficult to tell the story about how Jesus has changed you if you haven't started with making it public in baptism. And you're like, that seems silly. I know, but it seems to keep coming up all the time in here. It really is a symbol. For some of you, maybe that sounds crazy. Maybe this thing about Jesus sounds crazy. I want to compel you. If you begin to open your eyes, if you begin to open your eyes, you will come to find out that there's a great story that God is telling about His love and His mercy. And He has, before the foundation of the world, invited you to be a character in it. Would you trust Him? Let's pray. God, thank You so much that You have been telling a story from the beginning, a story that's bigger than we can fathom. Jesus, you are great. Just like the angel told Mary, you are great. Just like Saul saw face to face in a blinding light on a sunny day, you are great. And just like I have seen in my sin and brokenness that your mercy is great and it abounds. Just as I have experienced time after time, as I fail and hurt and run, 
and rebelled, your mercy and grace is great. There really is nothing that can separate us from the love that you've given us in Jesus. Thank you for that. Thank you, Jesus. God, if there's someone in this room, that, that just seems like an impossible thing to believe. I thank you that they're hearing these words, and I, and I, I appeal because I know exactly what's that, what that's like. I know what it's like to doubt the love of God. In fact, every morning I wonder if it co- could possibly be true. Would you begin in this moment to open our eyes to the possibility that you have done something for us in Jesus that is great, uh, greater than our reservations, greater than our doubts, uh, greater than all the reasons we can come up with why, why following you and believing you is a bad idea. There's a story you've been telling, a story that's not a bad story, but this story is actually good news, and you've invited us to enjoy it. You've invited us to be a part of it. For those of us that know this good news, that we've already been invited into this story, and we're beginning to take part in it, would you help us to see that we have a story to tell? A story of which Jesus is the main character and main focus. God, give us the courage and give us the awareness that even in difficult times like Paul, we have opportunities to share this story, a story of life in a dark world, a story of family and radical love and community in a world that's known by its superficiality, that's driven by its shallow relationships. God, we have a story that in spite of all the things that we've done, good or bad, you have done something marvelous for us that has given us a new purpose, a new love, a new identity. We thank you for this story that has invited us as characters. It's only by your grace that it's possible. Give us the courage now to respond to our part in this story. In Jesus' name, amen.